I want to focus on, again, 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2 today, so if you have a Bible, you might want to follow along. And for visitors, let me just mention that, uh, first of all, what we do is try to cover some of the material that the church is encouraging us to go through. And so we are in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and you can see that information that's already on the screen. And then we always like to do some application. And so today, what I have are a series of Ask Kirby questions that have been turned in. And uh, these are a little easier to cover. Some of you may have turned in some Ask Kirby questions and say you haven't gotten to them yet. That's because your questions are really difficult, and I'm still working on those. Matter of fact, some of these on relationships, I'm thinking, I need to bring Michael Perrin in here to answer these questions. But today, uh, it's always good when I look up there and see, I know Sandy's one of the questions. I always look around and make sure I'm answering questions when the people are in the room on that. So we will do some Ask Kirby questions today. Um, Matt uh, Mullins suggested that I might just take all these Ask Kirby questions and turn them into a book. I thought, well, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's kind of intriguing. But we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 2, but also just as a preview, I know some of you in the room actually this week went to the Prophecy Conference over there in Fort Worth with Jack Hibbs, and that had to do with prophecy. And that was in my mind this week because I had a very angry individual try to explain to me in a series of emails why this idea of the rapture is unbiblical. And if you look ahead to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, the word rapture is not there, but it comes from the Latin. And he's really trying to argue against that. And it was interesting because Pastor Jack Hibbs this week said, you know, what you run into are a number of people that are really fulfilling prophecy. Because if you look at Second Peter chapter 3, uh, it says that in the last days there will be those scoffers who will say, where is the coming of his, uh, you know, where is the promise of his coming? And he says, what you should do is get together with one of those scoffers. So I might get together with the guy that uh, wrote me a flaming email about that and take a picture, you know, say, here, you're a fulfillment of that. And then I thought, after I take a picture of that, I'm going to go on um, some kind of uh, editorial software and take me out like a rapture and then keep him there. What do you think? Would that be a good idea? So, you know, we <laughs> so anyway, those are some ideas out of the Prophecy Conference. So anyway, those of you that would like to get into prophecy, you just pay a little bit of time, be patient, and we're going to get into that because I've certainly been assaulted from all angles this week about the fact that some of us narrow-minded individuals that are part of a cult believe in the rapture. And actually, I think most of would like the rapture to take place even before we finish today. Are you with me on that? Okay, so let's get into this section, though, because the focus here is, as Paul is writing to those in Thessalonica, he's only been with them three weeks. He's now writing from Corinth and getting your report back. Uh, there are some very important charges coming against him, and one of those is, are you just like some of these other traveling evangelists, itinerant preachers? You know, we face this today. I run into some people that say, why should I believe you? I see these crazy people on Christian television. And I think most of them are a bunch of charlatans. And so it's a question that Paul had to deal with in his first day in the first century. I think we still have to deal with it today in the 21st century. And so let's, if we can, break it down into a couple of sections. So turn with me if you are there in First Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 to 6. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, remember they were beaten, jailed, and everything, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so again, he's, if you will, sort of defending himself, and you're going to say, well, that is maybe great for him, but does it have an application today? And I think it does. It gives us a series of tests that we can evaluate whether or not an individual you're listening to right now, a pastor you listened to last hour, a pastor that you heard at a conference or a pastor or a Bible teacher on television or radio, how do we evaluate them? And the point he's making really goes back to chapter 1, verse 5, and this is, you yourselves know, what do you know about us? What kind of men did Paul and those who traveled with him, because we have those names, Sylvanius and Timothy, what were they like? And there were people in Thessalonica trying to turn those people in this beginning, almost fledgling church against Paul. And so he urged them to remember what he and his workers were really like. So if you're taking some notes, let's put up some of the contrast. We see, for example, in verse 2, first of all, they preached with boldness, even in the midst of persecution. You know, some of these false teachers, they preach for a while, but when persecution comes, fades away. Okay? Number two, their message was true, not filled with errors. I mean, it is pretty easy with some of these individuals that have been false teachers in our day to point out the errors pretty easily if you really are able to do so. By the way, I'm going to recommend some books at the end so that you can even get some of those books and read more about that. Number three, verse three, they were not trying to deceive anyone. You know, sometimes you know when somebody's trying to deceive you, you know, they're trying to sell you something. You ever had one of those situations? And then you, know, you just get the sense, you know, we're just talking about the spirit sometimes in your life. You can say, I'm not so sure about that. They weren't trying to deceive them. Verse 5, never tried to flatter you, uh, but they were doing sort of flattery language. We're not trying to make money. Uh, matter of fact, one of the verses that uh, Paul talks about is actually best translated to make merchandise of you. Um, is actually the best way to translate the Greek. It's not in this passage, but another one that Paul talks about. And then we're not seeking fame or glory. Uh, so humility. And so there are some ways in which you can say, am I getting the straight truth? And certainly we need to have probably more discernment now in the 21st century than ever before. Uh, Pastor Graham today uh, quoted from the uh, number of individuals that are Bible-attending believers who do not believe the Holy Spirit is a real person. I thought he was going to quote one of the ones he quoted in the t uh, Twitter 
post a couple of weeks ago from our survey, but you know, you're starting to see more and more individuals, even sometimes they go to church, even if they're considered an evangelical church, nevertheless, when it comes to some of the basic doctrines are strain, and part of that is because we have so much, so many false teachers, it's just cacophony of false voices coming in that we need to be more discerning. So this list is pretty good. The list, interestingly enough, kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what pastors are supposed to be like. But as I put up there, notice this list is really about what they didn't do. Isn't that interesting? Um, And it's kind of a helpful checklist. You know, is that individual I'm listening to motivated by greed or by his own glory? Or are they recognizing the humility they should have? Are they trying to flatter, deceive, or trick you? Is their teaching filled with falsehoods and false promises, even false prophecies, you know? Remember the, uh, what was it, 87 reasons for the rapture in 87, you know? And then next year it came out, 88 reasons for the rapture in 88. (laughs) Okay, that didn't turn out so well. Or are they giving you the pure message of the gospel? Uh, When we get into the prophecy stuff, I'm going to have to uh, be careful about what I pick because there are going to be so many examples that we have. So we wanted them to know their motives, that their motives were pure, and also that they were sincere. And in some respects, the fact that they were sincere through the midst of persecution is another great test. Now, notice as well, they weren't in it for money, fame, or personal gain. I'm going to get back to this in just a minute. We'll get another passage here uh, where he goes into it in some more detail. But uh, those who are in it for personal gain, they're in it. And then when they could no longer make money from it, they're out of it. You ever notice that? So that's just another one of those tests to look at. And so it's all the more reason, as I've said many times in this class, for us to really exercise biblical discernment. So let's look at uh, the following verses because he goes into a little more depth in that regard. Verse 7, we read, first of all, that, uh, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, who how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to look at two aspects of that. First of all, they shared that they weren't just preaching, but they were sharing their own lives. And you'll see me a little bit later talk about the fact that in some respects, the Christian life is more caught than taught. And so in some respects, uh, they would have these traveling orators that would make their way through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Uh, certainly they show up quite a bit in Corinth and sometimes in Athens. And so they would speak and they'd gain a following, but it was only about money. Um, but here, instead, they invested themselves in those lives and developed a relationship with them. And so, in some respects, this is something that we are seeing more and more today. A lot of modern pastors are talking about the fact that we really need to work on the issue of relationships. 
I've seen a lot of books that have been talking about this and a lot of articles because we have been in this lockdown where we haven't had personal relationships. Wasn't it good to get together last night, those of you who were there? You know, first of all, I think we've eaten so much food. And then if you made a mistake to eat the food out there, I'm afraid I'm about in a food coma. So if I fall asleep, somebody wake me up, okay? Because we have really, but it was not only good to have great food, but great fellowship. Uh, and that was something that is, I think, missing sometimes and has been missing in this year of loneliness. And so we see how this was really important. And again, the, I, I know it's become a buzzword. Uh, Parker and I talk about the word authentic. It's kind of become a buzzword. But it is true that there is a sense of authentic relationship. It's more caught than taught. And so you can think about this. Most of you probably can at least identify somebody who you knew who was instrumental in your uh, conversion. Um, although there are probably some of you here that actually had never heard the gospel and a stranger shared it with you, I would imagine if we were to go around and share the testimonies, probably individuals who you had a relationship with were instrumental in you becoming a Christian. And so we see the importance of personal relationships in reaching out. Oftentimes people say, I want to know that you care before I want to know what you know. And so in some respects, that is a real important issue. So relationships, very key in terms of evangelism and the Great Commission. And oftentimes we can see that because we saw, you know, there was a superficiality with some of my non-Christian friends, but there seemed to be a depth with my Christian friends that was intriguing to me, and maybe that was what led you or certainly have led other people you know to Christ. So very interesting how that played itself out. But now again, in verses 9 and 10, he's trying to defend themselves uh, and again trying to compare them uh, to these traveling teachers and evangelists and preachers. And I'd be evangelists because many times they were teaching false religion. And he talks about it in three ways. If you're taking some notes, you might number one, do three. The first is that they tried to differentiate themselves from these false teachers by actually not being a financial burden. Paul says that we work day and night. We know what he was doing. He was a tent maker. Paul would show up in Thessalonica, and he would be actually stringing together and sewing tents. And those tents he would sell, and that was how he would, as a traveling evangelist, support himself. And we see a great deal of that uh, in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, I gave you a reference there to Acts 18, so that they did not have to ask for money. Now, there have been some that have taken this out of context, um, because some have said, well, then that means all of us should be tent makers, and there shouldn't be a church where we pass the offering plate. Nobody should ever raise financial support. And I ran into that when I was raising support. And matter of fact, now we do training at Pro Ministries to help even answer those questions. Because you can find elsewhere where Paul does encourage people to support those in ministry. I give you one example there in 1 Corinthians 9. That's where, of course, we have the famous passage of God loves, you know, us to support. And 2 Corinthians 9, you can look at 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. There are all sorts of statements there. But they chose in this case not to do so. And there were two benefits. The first benefit is that that gave Paul and Timothy and others an opportunity to go anywhere they want without having to worry about whether the people could support them. You know, they're not exactly checking into a, 
a Motel 6 or certainly not into a Hilton or something like that. Most of them had to find a home to stay in or there could have been an inn, but they had to pay for it. So this, by having their financial means met through tent making and other processes, that gave them a chance to go anywhere without being a financial burden to those individuals. And then also, number two, no one could accuse them of being in it for the money, right? And so you can see how that was very helpful. So that's the first argument. The second argument was, he then goes on to say that they were holy, righteous, and blameless. You might say, well, those are all synonyms. Why does he say it three times? Well, it turns out that in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to really emphasize something, you'd say it three times. And you see this, for example, in the book of Isaiah, where they're confronting the holiness of God. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. So, again, he's using three similar words to emphasize this was really significant. So that's why you sometimes see this three-part repetition. And then, again, helping them see when they look at the lives of these individuals, they were witnessing more with their lifestyle, maybe, than even with their words. Because they heard the words in the synagogue for three Sundays, but then they actually saw them through the rest of the week. And we've all known individuals that we know them on Sunday, but then when we see them in the business world on Tuesday, we go, is that the same guy that, you know? And so the words and the lifestyle matched. And so that was very significant because as I put on the screen here, what? Oftentimes, actions speak louder than words. So first of all, they didn't want to be a financial burden. Second of all, they wanted to be, of course, holy and blameless. Number three, then we get this statement about fathers and mothers. So if you'll permit me for just a minute, today we have this tendency to read into uh, the first century, our 21st century view about fathers and mothers. A little different. And we'll see where that is the case. First of all, he didn't just preach with them or debate with them because, first of all, he's spoken about the love of a mother. You know, when you think of the love of the mother, we always think, oh, that's so sweet. And that's exactly what he's trying to communicate here. It's important for us to understand, as I put on the screen here, the importance of relationships. But also that relationship comes by, if you will, earning the right to be heard. You know as well as I do. There's some people that are trying to convince you of something and you're going... You really haven't earned the right to speak that truth into my life. Or, I don't really see your life any different than mine. Matter of fact, I, in some respects, have less interest in what you have to say because I'm not really impressed with your life. And so there is a sense in which, you know, earning the right to be heard, sharing your faith in a conversation because you manifest that in your lifestyle, very important in terms of evangelism. And so here, he goes on to then use these examples of the fact that his companions were both like a nursing mother and father. And so he gives us two examples. Verse 7, you have the first one. The gentle care of a mother. Already started talking about that ahead of time. And then the second, the exhortation and encouragement of a father. Let's look at both of those real quickly. First of all, the father metaphor is kind of interesting because when we think of father's Kind of think of leadership and discipleship, and that certainly fits there. When we think of the nursing mothers, this would have been shocking right off the bat. Because when you think of a nursing mother, we think, well, of course. But 
in many of the Roman households, and believe me, there were lots of Romans living there in Thessalonica, oftentimes the slaves served as the wet nurses for their babies. So this idea of a nursing mother today, we sort of take that for granted, but we don't have slaves um, nursing the children, but that was sometimes very significant. So first of all, this had to be a little bit jarring to those in Thessalonica because they had not seen nursing mothers. And so here is the idea of caring as a mother would, for her own children. And so, again, that brings us back to this idea of a deep and intimate relationship he's trying to communicate to. A key verse there in John 10 about the fact that Jesus is, of course, the great shepherd and, of course, knows his sheep intimately, lays down his life for those. So that certainly helps us understand. But even more so, you've got to understand, in the ancient culture, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were covering some of these issues in other passages that we looked at. You know, things like gentleness, that was kind of seen as a shameful trait. Today, we take for granted that compassion is a virtue. And Rodney Stark, in his book, uh, um, The Triumph of Christianity, talks about how, in some respects, Christianity won the battle. And today we see that people that are compassionate, we hold them in high esteem. But back then, compassion wasn't something because instead what they would actually value are things like strength and power and rugged individualism. And here, Paul just turns it on its head. And says that gentleness, peace, and humility, those are the virtues we should strive for. So even as we talk about mothers, much of this probably was very jarring for those in Thessalonica hearing this read in that church. And so then he talks about a loving father. Okay, this is kind of interesting as well, because this is the idea that the father would have exhortation. Um, instead of the gentleness of the mother, kind of puts the two halves together. You know, God loves us as a mother hen, also calls us as a father. But here he says, we exhorted you, encouraged you, and charged you. So again, you've got that threefold illustration that we looked at just a minute ago. But again, we see some really strong emphasis on the fact that here, this would be kind of a loving, encouraging father. But the fathers in Rome weren't necessarily that way. They were fairly strict. Matter of fact, they really held over you the idea of life and death. And it's, I think, really striking to me to see that here again, this would have been really jarring to think of a father as loving, encouraging, and exhorting. And then finally, probably the passage that is probably best known from this chapter is the fact that here, I charged you to walk in what? A manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And what I thought I might do is, uh, these last couple of weeks, Pastor Graham, of course, has been taking us through the book of Romans. So if you wanted to see some other verses that get you into that, um, when you hear about this idea of glory or eternal glory, the passage that comes to mind is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, about this idea of the eternal weight of glory. Very good booklet, by the way, by C.S. Lewis about that uh, passage as well. But here in the book of Romans, we see some passages. First of all, in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, remember when Pastor Graham talked about that a few weeks ago, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But now look at this. Through him, 
We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of what? The glory of God. So just again, this idea of God's glory of glory and kingdom, very key. Uh, since we're in that great chapter, chapter 8, we've been uh, in chapter 8 today, um, before, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. A parallel passage, really, with 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and this idea of glory. So, one of the lessons we can certainly learn from this is that there are some very good criteria, not only in 1 Thessalonians, but also in 1 Timothy, to evaluate um, an elder, a deacon, a pastor, just a Christian teacher, and that is certainly the case. And number two, to recognize the ultimate goal is what? The glory of God. With that, since we're running tight on time, I'm going to move to the Ask Kirby questions. And the first of those was, was the Holy Spirit in heaven before Jesus died on the cross? Now, this um, message that we had from Pastor Graham today talked about how the Holy Spirit is connecting us, perfecting us, protecting us, correcting us, and directing us. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Why that question? Well, last week in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we had the Holy Spirit. Um, for the last three weeks, Pastor Graham has been in the Holy Spirit. So, what about this in terms of the Holy Spirit? And I might just mention, I think EJ is listening right now. We had dinner with EJ the other day. You know, he produced this book on the attributes of God the Father. Yeah, from what I understand, he's now working on a book on the attributes of God the Holy Spirit. And so I'm looking forward to that book. So, EJ, maybe you can help me out at the end here if I've made any mistakes, because he's already doing the research on it. But what about this? Where was the Spirit before the Spirit was then coming on the day of Pentecost? Well, you can go to Genesis, and I think you see it right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Look at this verse. And what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, many people take that to mean the Spirit of God, meaning the Holy Spirit. And if you say, well, are we sure about that? Yes, because you can go down to verse 26, where it says, then God said, let us. Who's us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I'll be the first to admit there are some Christians that say, well, when it says Spirit of God, that's just God's Father is the Spirit, and they even deny the Trinity. And there are Christians that do that. There's like oneness Pentecostalism, for example, who I think are saved, but they're wrong on the tr Trinity. Okay. And they always like to say, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Well, you know, rapture's not in the Bible either, but uh, when they're all left behind, they'll go, well, maybe it wasn't in the Bible, but uh, all of a sudden everybody disappeared. So here, if indeed you accept this, and I do, that the Spirit of God, when you see that in the Old Testament, says, well, then the Holy Spirit really was pretty busy. And if that's the case, here's a quick set of verses. And if they come too quickly, don't forget they're on the website. I'm going to suggest some books which are on the website. Or then this is usually a time when everybody shakes out the camera and starts taking pictures. So either way. So let me take you through this. This is going to be a speed run, but we will look at some of the places where you see this idea of the Spirit. Remember Moses, Joshua... Hitting a, a big issue, and all of a sudden, then what? The Spirit comes. Numbers 11. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they 
were among those had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. What happened when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost? They did what? Prophesied. So I think that probably is the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look in the book of Judges. Othniel, and the Spirit of the Lord came on him. A little bit later in Judges, we have Gideon. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Okay, let's look at 1 Samuel. Here is where Samuel is speaking to Saul, and Saul is to go out and to obey. He disobeys. So even though the Spirit was on him, (laughs) he disobeyed, and now judgment is coming on Saul. But nevertheless, it talks about here in 1 Samuel 10 that what the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, that is, Saul, mightily. Then, a little bit later, you do see that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. So David was in the Spirit, right? And I would take that to be, again, the Holy Spirit. Makes sense to me. Then, we know that even though the Spirit was on David, what happens? David sins. So let's now go to a couple of other passages, which we'll get to in just a minute. To answer that question, but put a pin in that for just a minute, because while we're in 1 Samuel 19, even though Saul now is chasing David, and we've got all sorts of problems going on, you know, talk about having family problems, Saul and David and all that, uh, anyway. But here, even there, in the midst of this, it says the Spirit of God came upon what the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So here you see the connection again, which I would think would be the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament. Um, then you have in Second Chronicles uh, the illustration that the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, and I believe the Spirit would come on those who were prophesying. They were speaking words they did not know. Nehemiah, I love this one because here's now a judgment. However, thou didst bear with them for many years and admonish them by the Spirit through the prophets. So there is a passage that tends to suggest that when these prophets are speaking, they're speaking in the Spirit. I think it could be the Holy Spirit. Now, back to the point I mentioned just a minute ago. We know that Psalm 51 was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba. And he asked the question early on, you know, when did sin come into my life? And it says, really, if you look at the New International Version, which I think renders it best, uh, Psalm 51.5 says that I am sinful from the moment of conception. Which, by the way, is a verse I use so often when we talk about pro-life issues, uh, which we've been talking about a lot on radio since, of course, there is a case before the Supreme Court that will be um, heard oral arguments in November. And, of course, we have the heartbeat bill right here in Texas. But a little bit later, you see now, because he is reflecting on his sin, he asks God, do not cast me away from thy presence. God, don't take me away from your presence. I, you know, I certainly want to be in your presence. And look at this. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me, which I think is a better rendition of some of these passages on Spirit of God. And then one more, as if you needed any more. Uh, Ezekiel 2.2, and he spoke to me and the Spirit entered me. So again, what did the Holy Spirit do before Pentecost? Looks like he was busy occasionally, um, infrequently. But then he came, and now he's on and in us. Is that pretty significant? So that answers the question. If you find yourself saying, okay, I'd like to read um, EJ's book, but it's not out yet. So are there any good books to read? Yes, here's a few of them. Uh, The classic is A.W. Tozer. 
Mystery of the Holy Spirit, one of the great classics of the Christian life, if you wanted to know more about the Holy Spirit. Got to put a Billy Graham up there. Billy Graham's book, The Holy Spirit, Activating God's Power in Your Life. Uh, Certainly a very powerful book out in that regard. And um, since I occasionally teach at Dallas Seminary, I've got to mention this book because it's part of what's called the Swindoll Leadership Library. I have the entire set of the Swindoll Leadership Library. And one of those books is by Robert Romacki, The Holy Spirit, Who He Is, What He Does, and forward by Chuck Swindoll. And it's part of the Swindoll Leadership Library. So these are some books if you wanted to know a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Only have a few moments left, so let me try to answer one more Ask Kirby question. And you keep them coming, and I'll keep trying to get to them, okay? That's kind of the plan here. Some of you want to know, should I fill them out here? Yes, you can fill them out in the back. Uh, Some of you have been sending emails. Either way works. And this one is, what are some books or other ways to build up or protect young children and young people, you know, children or grandchildren? So if you're looking for some books... I'm going to put some books on the screen here. Everybody with me? And so some of you have young children. Some of you have older children. Some of you don't have children, but you know nieces and nephews and others that would benefit. Or you know people who have children that you can pass these on to. So I think I've covered everybody now, haven't I? Pretty well. So let's first of all, what are good books for young children? If you really want to help young children really begin to think biblically about issues. And certainly one of the classics is a book by Lael Arrington. Uh, she has her master's degree from University of Texas at Dallas and is a great speaker. I think they live now in North Carolina, if I remember right. But World Proofing Your Kids. And it's been around for a while, so you can probably get it as a used book uh, very easily on Amazon. And so that book has been around for at least 10 years. But some new books, uh, this week, a matter of fact, the new book by J. Warner Wallace, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, is coming out. You know, a uh, person of interest. But he not only has written books on cold case Christianity, God's crime scene, but cold case Christianity for kids. And if you've got kids that like to do investigation and this kind of stuff, they can actually investigate Jesus with a real detective. Or the other one, investigate creation with a real detective. So if you want to teach your kids about who Jesus is or about creation, those would be really helpful. Now, I recognize that we've got a lot of people in here. I've got a science teacher. I've got people that love uh, creation. What about some of the science stuff? Because these young kids, they love dinosaurs. So what do I do there? Well, this one, actually, Dinosaur Activity Book. Um, I think I saw that the other day at the ICR Discovery Center. So there's a book. You know, they just love the dinosaurs. So just, you know, if they're interested in dinosaurs, uh, there's a lot. That's from ICR. I'm going to mention some from Answers in Genesis. But also one of the other books that they have at ICR is Work of His Hands is an adult book, but they have Work of His Hands for Kids. So there's a lot of great ICR books. I could spend the next 10 minutes, but I don't have that much time talking about ICR books. But they just go to ICR.org, and you'll find a lot of the great material. Or look at those next time we go to the Discovery Center. On the right-hand side, I just wanted to do a shout-out as well to Answers in Genesis, because sometimes maybe they're not into dinosaurs, but they're kind of interested in, well, there's a, looks like a seal, right? An otter, I guess I should say. That's probably an otter and a fawn. And I guess that's a meerkat. We've got a woodpecker. And so just talk about all the fun things about animals, because they love animals, right? And so, again, that can be a way to teach 
about God's creation as well. Like the woodpecker. Woodpeckers, you know, I, I really um, are probably one of the best arguments against evolution. There's no way that woodpeckers could, from any kind of reasonable expectation, develop to millions of years of mutation and natural selection. So anyway, those are some science books. Okay, we've got some older kids here as well, including one right here. Okay, so what do we give to them? You know, what do we give to some of the older ones? Well, first of all, Ellie Ferrer and her husband John used to be over at um, the Mid-Cities, and uh, they actually are now have a full ministry of apologetics. So Hillary, who's been on my program, uh, has done what's called Mama Bear Apologetics, and this one is Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. Then the second one, Mama Bear Apologetics, Guide to Sexuality. The amount of confusion, gender confusion, sexual orientation, those kinds of things. Those are some really good books uh, that you can, if they're younger, read to them or they can read them themselves. One other book I thought I might just mention is a book that was edited by Sean McDowell, Apologetics for a New Generation, taking on kind of the big issues right now that Generation Y, those born after 1980, or Generation Z, those born after 1996, are having to deal with. I mean, just think of what it is like for an average young person today to confront all the different issues about sexuality, about race, and all the rest. So that it really tries to, in a very concrete way, answer those questions. And then for older children, or for us adults, uh, I have a few books in mind there. First of all would be uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. At that time, that book already had five million copies, so I think that's going to do pretty well. And again, very interesting for the average young person, because as he or she's reading through there, he actually just takes you on an investigative journey. And he interviews this particular apologist and this particular theologian, and he has narrative. So it's very easy to read, and that's why it's done so well. I've got the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for creation, case for Easter, case for Christmas. I mean, we've got a lot of cases there, so any one of those books, but this one is kind of a good starting book, and I wish that existed when I was a Christian. I became a Christian because of reading things like Mere Christianity, but this is so engaging and so well done. Kind of the classic book that is used by Summit Ministries um, is Understanding the Times, first written by Dave Noble, now by Jeff Myers and Dave Noble. It's the resource they use if you send young people off to Summit Ministries for two weeks uh, to study worldview. Or, of course, we use some of the same material at our Probe Mind Games camp for one week right here in the Dallas area. And so, again, that's kind of the classic book where you look at the different worldviews and see how you line up with those. And then one other one that I find very engaging for young people because they love how Frank Turek and Norm Geiser say, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist because the evidence is so overwhelming for the Bible, for Jesus Christ, and for creation. So those are just a couple of uh, books I might recommend. And if you want to grab one or two of those and put them on your shelf for you to read, I would encourage you to do so. And if you want to use those to pass on to educate our children and grandchildren, that's the case. But as I look at the clock, it is noon, so I need to turn it back to Parker.